Welcome back to Season 5 of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yee, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. For those of you new to the show, each week of the academic year, we speak to a neuroscientist who will be visiting our campus as part of the Stanford Neuroscience Institute's seminar series. These scientists are from all over the country and even the world. We'll converse not only about their latest science, but about the backgrounds, motivations, and interests that underlie their work and beyond. Today our guest is Jia Shen, a professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. We'll be speaking with her about her education in China, figuring out her true love for science, and presenilins in Alzheimer's disease. All this and more coming up. We're here today with Jia Shen, Professor of Neurology at Harvard. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Shen. My pleasure. Um, all right, so usually we'd like to start the interview um, talking a little bit about your background. So can you tell us uh, where you grew up and what you were interested in as a kid? I grew up mostly in Shanghai, mm -hmm. and then I also spent a few years uh, in the north part of the northern part of country in a coal mining city, and then I spent some years in the countryside as well. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, during the Cultural Revolution, we didn't have books, which was mm -hmm. really a tragedy. And uh, but instead, we entertained each other playing cards, so that was fun also. Were you curious about biology at that point, or do you remember when you first got interested in science? Uh, I always loved the maths mm -hmm. and the books, so as soon as the books returned, I spent all my free time reading every book, every book meaning actually all you know novels. So I think... I really love the numbers, and I love the words. I love to play with words. Somehow, even though I grew up without books, I still always thought I would be a writer when I grew up. Mm -hmm. So science was not in the forefront of my mind as a child. Mm -hmm. You thought you might study literature or something like this? Yeah, except that, and uh, the cultural revolution ended, and mm -hmm. uh, so we had a math competition. I did a well, so I mm -hmm. got selected into a very competitive high school, and I did a well again. I suppose if you're good with math and the physics and the chemistry, you're, you're not allowed to choose literature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So kind of like, there was no way. You know, I had to do science. I see. They separated us after first year in high school, and mm -hmm. I was not allowed to go to the other side. How, how old were you, were you when you went to this math high school? Or? I was 14. It was okay. only two years, and it was very intense. So mm -hmm. two years we covered, um, like, six years of material, because mm -hmm. before it was Cultural Revolution, we never studied anything. Right. And uh, so it was very intense. So I liked that. I liked mm -hmm. my classmates, all very unique, really smart. We actually stayed as friends mm -hmm. to now. Oh, wow. So that was really cool. And, uh, yeah, so I, you know, the high school was a lot of fun. And mm -hmm. I was influenced by my Chinese teacher who somehow thought... I should have gone into biology because the 21st century was going to be biology century. So I mm. listened to him and went to <laughs> biology. Mm. For college. For college, yeah. yes. And uh, so in college, I think I once we started biochemistry, the mm. first two years I was kind of just uh, taking 
math and organic chemistry with the math department students and the chemistry departments because biology was so boring. Mm. But once <laughs> I started about chemistry, I kind of fell in love with it because, because you know, it was just uh, um, more logical and uh, and uh, more kind of you know detailed precise right. and uh, less descriptive so i started liking biology better and uh, and uh, so eventually i went to graduate school and uh, so i think somehow uh, science came to me slowly so you did go end up going to graduate school you came to the united states um and studied with jay hirsch i guess he was at uva at that time yes it still is yes. um and you were studying alternative splicing of mrnas and fruit flies uh was there a particular thing that drew you to this problem or this system at the time? Yes, uh, there was. I was, again, at a crossroad and uh, trying to decide whether I should continue with biology or whether I should do something different. Mm-hmm. And the Jay just moved to UVA, and I was in a classical Drosophila genetics lab uh, in uh, Ted Wright's lab, who was like T.H. Morgan student. Mm-hmm. So I initially liked uh, doing um, fly um, classes on paper was a lot of fun but Mm -hmm. fly pushing was again kind of you know boring and Mm -hmm. uh, Jay was this molecular geneticist and uh, I sort of was again drawn to doing molecular aspects of biology and uh, and in terms of Splicing, I think I became interested because it's, I thought it was kind of cool. Sex mm-hmm. was determined by alternative splicing, Drosophila. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I wanted to study the splicing mechanism between CNS and the non-CNS tissues in Drosophila. Mm-hmm. But again, it was very abstract. And mm-hmm. I had um, discussion with Jay many times is that, you know, whether I was sufficiently interested enough in science. He said, yeah. oh, you get very excited. I uh-huh. said, well, once I leave the lab, I didn't really care. So, so he encouraged you basically to keep going even though you weren't sure? Yeah, um, he definitely encouraged me, but I still was not sure. So mm-hmm. that was the sort of, I think, um, shaped my future choices in terms of which area I eventually you know, went into. Right. For your postdoc, you made a big shift, um, and you went to Susumu Tanagawa's lab. Uh, I guess he was at MIT at that time already? Yes. Um, and at that time, he was just, he'd already won the Nobel for, uh, for in immunology for B-cell uh, recombination. Um, and at that time, it was just, I, I guess it had been a couple of years in that he'd been working in neuroscience, making all of these transgenics, making transgenic mice was kind of a big thing then. Um, can you tell us why um, you decided to, to join that lab, making the jump from, you know, this very molecular thing in fruit flies to, uh, to, to joining this big mouse lab? And also, what, what was the atmosphere like in, that, in the lab at the time? I was attracted to the Tanagawa lab because basically I couldn't make up my mind whether <laughs> I wanted to do immunology or neuroscience. Oh. And his lab was the only place, and uh, I interviewed five different labs, but his lab was the only lab. Oh. I didn't have to make that decision. Mm-hmm. And also I was very attracted by his simple but logical way of thinking mm-hmm. and uh, approaching scientific problems because, you know, we spent two hours just talking. So it was an mm-hmm. unusual interview. Instead of visiting the whole lab, he and I talked for two hours. Wow. 
And uh, so I also knew that I wanted to do something completely different from my graduate work. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do something that is more relevant to human health. Mm -hmm. Instead of a pure abstract scientific problem, I felt that I could do it. And once I get into it, I did enjoy it. Mm -hmm. splicing mechanism but mm -hmm. my problem is that once I leave the lab I felt mm -hmm. like well why did I do that it just so, doesn't matter to the world basically yeah, yeah I felt yeah. like it was not enough at least for me I see um, and you definitely pursued that so while you were in uh, the Tanagawa lab you uh, you made a mouse uh, a transgenic mouse that was um, missing or it's a knockout mouse uh, for a molecule called um, or presenilin pre presenilin uh, a protein responsible for presenile you know mm -hmm. disease mm -hmm, exactly and very relevant for uh, alzheimer's and, and neurodegenerative disease um, can you tell us why this was uh, a good candidate at the time to make a mouse i mean that's quite an endeavor um essentially um i was attracted to this protein because I was looking for a project and mm. uh, I was sitting around in the lab and uh, thinking about different projects and uh, for three months and mm -hmm. I couldn't make up my mind which one I should choose to work on. And looking back 20 years later, actually any of those projects I was thinking actually would all be fine. They were all really good projects. Mm -hmm. And uh, this one was kind of like perfect project for me because and I was in a learning memory lab mm -hmm. doing, um, the lab is known to make knockout mice to study the functional proteins that mm -hmm. are important for learning and memory and the synaptic function. Right, they were doing and all these NMDA knockouts and things exactly. like this. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to not to study, I could either do the basic mechanism of um, learning and memory, or I could do basic molecular mechanism of dementia. So mm -hmm. that, again, I had a long argument with discussion with Suzumu mm -hmm. why I wanted to work on Alzheimer's. Because back then, a self-respecting basic bias, you know, <laughs> just don't work on disease. Why, why not? Why not? At the time, it, it just wasn't. Very, it was just not done. I see. I see. And uh, so basically, he said, no. <laughs> but, uh, I said, why not? You mm -hmm. are studying mass models. These mm -hmm. are the people walking around later in life developing dementia. Mm -hmm. and isn't that fascinating to study that molecule? And uh, there was, this would provide another angle to, uh, to, for us to understand better learning and memory mechanism because, mm -hmm. you know, mice are mice and mm -hmm. uh, people who develop dementia with mutations that are highly penetrant would be a great, you know, way to study and... Uh, it's very clear there will be a phenotype probably, right? <laughs> Actually, no? I was not predicting anything because mm. when you make a mouse and the, the beauty of it, it's like you open a box of chocolate. You don't mm. really know which flavor you will get. You don't mm. know what kind of phenotype you will get. So, um, you know, as a geneticist, we don't like to, I mean, at least I don't, still don't like to predict things. I, I prefer to see. Mm -hmm. I think with an unbiased attitude and the, to see what's in front of you and uh, is better than to have a preconceived notion because I feel like believing is seeing. Once you're believing something, that sort of inference. Right your way of thinking Perfect. so yeah. yeah so that's why I felt like it was uh, so it's still uh, risky it's actually well I thought that was a very safe project uh. 
I was trained to do um, Drosophila genetics, switching to mouse genetics. It was super easy, and mm. uh, that did pan out like that. It was very easy, mm. and uh, that was the reason why it was. The project was extremely competitive, and I published the first paper. Mm. And uh, be- although I was novice in. Mm. I mean, I never work with mice, mm-hmm. and very quickly I realized the complexity of mouse genome is <laughs> the same scale as Drosophila genome. Mm-hmm. Everything's different. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the logical thinking of, you know, using a genetic approach is identical, so mm-hmm. it was not, you know, very different. And the reason why I thought it was safe was that the original paper and uh, from uh, Peter uh, Hislop's group, it was a very clear, convincing genetics paper. That's the Pisinolin 1, the initial cloning paper linking this gene to familiar Alzheimer's disease. I see. And at the, at the time, did, did people uh, know exactly what the protein did? So now my understanding is that this is actually a protein. It's part of an enzyme complex that cleaves other proteins. Did people know the function of the protein at the time? No, nothing, because it was a novel gene identified, and that was linked to familiar Alzheimer's disease. And that was all? That was all. All mm-hmm. we knew was that I looked at a paper, and uh, I saw it was very solid, and mm-hmm. the five different mutations distributed throughout the gene were all responsible to cause the disease, and uh, the penetrance is extremely high. Mm -hmm. So I think it was like, you know, that's why we call it a causative mutations. If you have the mutation, you have um, the disease. So that's why I thought it was relatively safe project to mm. work on because this gene clearly is so important for Alzheimer's disease. I think it was about a month later, a homologue was mm. discovered. And mm. uh, so basically this gene family has two genes. So I think I was extremely lucky to have picked mm. really good projects mm. by now more than 200 mutations and wow. have been identified yeah. and in PS1 alone. Yeah. So highlighting the importance in right. Alzheimer's disease. Right. And eventually, I guess you got uh, Susumu to come, a, come around and let you make that mouse. Um, and uh, can you tell us about what you actually ended up seeing in the end? So uh, I still remember and uh, when I saw the pup and mm-hmm. the, the first pup, and mm-hmm. it was dead. <laughs> a newborn yeah. dead pup was mm-hmm. a very striking phenotype because mm-hmm. the body was much shorter and there was a uh, kind of kinked tail so it was very unique mm-hmm. so that sent me off immediately to learn to study basically mouse embryos right which mm-hmm. I have never seen right. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so before that, and uh, so um, so that you know, in the mouse embryonic brain, and uh, but it was it was a very exciting time. So yeah. I felt like I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, in Suzumu's lab, we tend to all function very independently. Right. And uh, so yeah, that was an exciting time. Right. So basically, that was um, you know very clear, and uh, from very early on, basically, what, what are the phenotypes. The challenge back then was basically I was a novice in a mm. lab, mm-hmm. not really familiar with neurodevelopment, so mm-hmm. I had to learn. And, uh, and also the phenotype is very complex, and mm-hmm. you kind of had to have uh, look at all the phenotype because the, the mice had a cerebral hemorrhage. 
Yeah. And uh, so uh, you may just think that, oh, all the phenotype is caused by hemorrhage. I still remember I discussed that in the paper, uh, mm-hmm. in the discussion. I thought the, neuro- the neurogenesis phenotype is independent of hemorrhage because hemorrhage occurs um, at different time points and also mm-hmm. the location vary and the onset of hemorrhage vary whereas the neural developmental phenotypes mm-hmm. are very consistent from embryos to embryo. Mm-hmm. So I felt like if you are well trained as a biologist, mm-hmm. even though you enter a new field, you can just apply your logic mm-hmm. and you still can draw the right conclusions. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I remember when I uh, was ready, I gave Suzumu the paper, and at least he did it, look at it quickly, and we <laughs> submitted it quickly, and yeah. uh, we had a one discussion, he said, because later on in those mice, the brain had a hole, so his yeah. question was right on target, was that, um, were those neurons generated or they die? Right. And uh, I said, uh, I don't know. Yeah. And uh, because when you have a neurogenesis phenotype and uh, the lack of neuron could it be due to cell death and it could it be, you know, because they were not born. It was a very valid question and uh, that was the reason why we did spend another five years and uh, in my lab right. uh, here and yes. uh, to study the underlying um, uh, neurogenesis um, phenotypes. Right. After your postdoc, you, you went on to start your own lab at Harvard, where you are still now and still studying the presenilins very heavily. Um, you, you continue to study the, their developmental effects and their effects on uh, or their roles in neurogenesis, which um, depended on another molecule notch, which is kind of a classic um, developmental pathway. But, um, but yeah, I do want to talk about um, these conditional mice you made, which um, you wanted to have a way to probably remove presenilin later in, later in development to see, you know, what effect they have in adult mice. And so what effects did you find in these conditional mice? Once I came here, actually immediately I started that, and uh, uh, of course we it's Alzheimer gene, and right. uh, I'm not going to be happy just to study presenilin function or notch function mm-hmm. uh, in the developing brain, and uh, we want to study the function of presenilins in the right cell type, which is the you know uh, adult excitatory primary neurons. Mm-hmm. This group of neurons are particularly uh, vulnerable in Alzheimer's disease. They happen to express very high levels of presenilins. Right. So that was the reason why we right. went on to make the PS1 conditional knockout. So the PS1 single conditional mm-hmm. knockout mice, and that we used the intrinsic feature of chemokinase mm-hmm. Cree. That mouse was developed uh, in mm-hmm. Eric Kendall's lab, and we characterized and uh, we are still using it heavily. I think many labs are using this line because it's actually expressed very early about postnatal mm-hmm. day 18, and it's very broadly expressed in excitatory neurons of the mm-hmm. forebrain. And uh, so the PS1 single conditional knockout, that was actually surprising. The phenotype was extremely mm-hmm. subtle because, remember, the germline PS1 right. knockout phenotypes Lethal, were very okay. dramatic. So... Yeah, the first one we made was the uh, postnatal forebrain-specific conditional knockout mice. And uh, so that one, we only found some very subtle memory deficits mm-hmm. in the water maze. It was kind of surprising, and uh, it had a such subtle phenotypes. Right. And uh, 
But as a geneticist, I know PS1 has PS2. So the PS1 single conditional knockout Mm -hmm. is a hypomorph. It's not a complete, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Mm -hmm. no phenotype. The concern would be that PS2 might compensate for PS1, right? Compensate, yes. Without PS1, PS2 expression is, Mm -hmm. is elevated. And uh, so then we cross to the PS2 no background because PS2 no mice basically had no detectable um, CNS mm-hmm. phenotypes. So this allowed us to quickly make the double conditional mm-hmm. knockout mice. That was very mm-hmm. striking and uh, it developed very age-dependent memory deficit. That was the okay. first thing we saw. And uh, at two months of age, we saw... Um, subtle and but significant uh, learning memory deficits and in the six months the striking thing is that by the time they're six months old they completely fail the water maze they completely fail the fair conditioning and the tests basically wow. they don't learn at mm-hmm. all but if you do sterology counting the entire um, cerebral cortex mm-hmm. and you see at a six months of age 18 uh, percent of cortical neurons were lost a third of the cortical volume were lost Whereas at two months of age, you don't see any significant reduction compared mm-hmm. to the control. So, so basically, these mice not only have age-dependent um, worsening of behavior, also they have age-dependent neurodegeneration, mm-hmm. and also they have age-dependent inflammatory responses with like astrogliosis, microgliosis, and also um, we um, did a lot of electrophysiology. Mm-hmm. I come back and I just want to ask, so again, thinking back to your original developmental phenotypes in the, um, the constitutive or complete knockout um, before you were using these Cree lines to get the kind of time control of, of your knockout, um, were, so are these um, developmental versus uh, later effects, are they actually mediated through the same mechanism? So you mentioned this protein notch, or um, are they completely separate? They're completely separate, and uh, we did not know because although probably more than 50 gamma secretase substrates mm-hmm. have been reported, and I still think uh, amyloid precursor protein, APP, and NOTCH are the two bona fide, you know, uh, physiological just, substrates. Just to clarify, presenilin is part of this gamma secretase enzymatic complex, and then the substrates are, are the proteins that they cleave, right? So the saying is that basically presenilins are very mm-hmm. highly expressed in excitatory mm-hmm. parameter neurons that are particularly vulnerable mm-hmm. in AD, right? Notch are not expressing these cells. So notch is just not in these neurons that are affected by the presenilin knockout or, or the, you know, and later stage in adult brain. Yeah, and uh, so, um, so in terms of presenilin and... Uh, we still don't know actually what are the downstream target and uh, in the adult brain that is important for neuronal survival. So, so we are doing uh, trying to use fly genetics again to do a whole genome screening. Hopefully, oh, coming, coming back, back around. around. That's right. <laughs> uh. Um, and and then a final question about the this developmental versus mature. So coming back again to human patients. So um, you know, I believe that that most of these presenilin and correct me if I'm wrong. These mutations are actually inherited dominantly, which as like uh, for example, you were saying they're kind of causal mutations. So if you have one copy of this mutation, you actually do have a a problem. Um, and how is it? Do any Alzheimer's patients, de- you know, have developmental? 
uh, problems, or is this just not something that occurs? Is there an explanation? That's for that? a very good point, and people often yeah. overlook. And uh, my thinking mm. was that, and uh, clearly, penicillin and is required for uh, neurodevelopment because without penicillins, and you just deplete the neuroprogenitive cells because the progenitor cells excel cell cycle too soon to become postmetallic neurons because the progenitor population is yeah. depleted, the neuronal population is depleted too, right? So the question mm -hmm. is that, and pisinin mutations are missense mutations, most of them, the vast mm -hmm. majority, and missense mutations, they're dominantly inherited. The question is that, do these mutations and actually also cause neurodevelopmental phenotypes, and that may mm -hmm. contribute to Alzheimer's disease, right? Because you have fewer neurons mm -hmm. to start out with. And if you lose more, and you're going to below, fall below that threshold required for um, carry out normal cognitive function. And so that mm -hmm. can be a contributing factor, right? Although in mice, mm -hmm. that's uh, somewhat difficult to study. I mean, at least we did not study that exhaustively. And uh, mm -hmm. the, the way to study would be, um, for example, PS1 heterozygous not heterozygous knockout mice. Do they have mm -hmm. any neurodevelopmental mm -hmm. phenotypes? We did not do it that mm -hmm. exhaustively, but anecdotally, mm -hmm. and the clinicians often told me that, and uh, seems like uh, the PX1 mutation carriers are cognitively, mm -hmm. you know, impaired. You know, even before mm -hmm. they develop Alzheimer's disease. Before. So more recently, right. I mean, uh, I don't know if you have heard, in Colombia, mm -hmm. there is a big, um, not a one big family, there is a huge kindred over like mm -hmm. a thousand PS1 mutation carriers. And so th right. because they have this kind of, you know, um, yeah. or intermarriage, you know, you have more like mm -hmm. to have homozygotes. And... Uh, Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's, the sample size is very small, but they mm -hmm. it seems like um, they do have cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. I think that, that could be related to developmental phenotypes. Um, all right. So I kind of want to move into some stuff that you've been doing more recently. It's actually kind of ties a little bit into thinking about um, human disease and what actually happens in, uh, uh, you know, human Alzheimer's. Um, so, uh, so actually, very recently, you published a paper um, with uh, a collaborator um, in which you actually created um, another set of transgenic mice that have these, dis as you said, there's like some 200 different mutations in presenilin um, associated with familial Alzheimer's. So you've made a mouse that contains some of, or, or one of these disease-related mutations. Um, and part of the reasoning here is that um, we're not actually sure or you said many of these mutations are missense mutations, mutations that lead to um, loss of the protein. Um, but it still, I guess, was debated in the field whether the disease, Alzheimer's disease, is truly um, like a loss of function or actually a gain of function. So these proteins actually have some new function that's abnormal. Um, can you clarify for our audience um, what, what this debate was and why it was important to make these mice? Okay, so the debate was that and uh, because um, Alzheimer's disease uh, historically was defined to be the brain that has amyloid plaques and the tangles. So there was this mm -hmm. debate uh, before my time whether amyloid plaques are more important or the tangles were more important in the pathogenesis. And uh, mm -hmm. so 
once pisinolin mutations was identified to increase the A beta forty two to forty ratio, and uh, mm-hmm. so and people thought and uh, pisinolin mutation. Cause Alzheimer disease through this increase of A beta forty two to forty ratio, and that ratio is actually it's so one of the proteins that's cleaved by the presenolin or the gamma secretase complex that that's two forms of that that's protein right. or what so, happens. Um, right. APP is cleaved by beta secretase and a gamma secretase to generate A beta. So gamma secretase mm-hmm. cleavage determines what's the end of A beta. For a beta thirty eight, forty, forty two, forty three. So these gamma secretase are sloppy enzyme. Does cover does not cover mm-hmm. it precisely. So the thought mm-hmm. in the field was that this increasing ratio is the cause of the the, uh, the disease. Therefore, mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical industry invested a huge amount of money to mm-hmm. uh, develop drugs to block gamma secretase to inhibit pisinolin function. Pisinolin conditional knockout actually recapitulate Alzheimer's disease better than APP transgenic mice when you overproduce huge amount of A beta, develop a lot of plaques, right? Because they never develop mm-hmm. neurodegeneration. So I actually cautioned that we need to know the disease mechanism better. So my view mm-hmm. was extremely unpopular. And uh, so, <laughs> but I think, you know, I like to rely on my own logic. It just, made a better mm-hmm. sense to me that loss of pisinolin function probably underlies uh, neurodegeneration and the dementia in Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. That's also consistent with the distribution of mutation, right? If you have over mm-hmm. 200 mutations distributed throughout the gene, it's a loss of function, yeah. gain of function, right? And mm-hmm. uh, so, 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 so that was sort of uh, the, the background, and uh, because the field and the people have been studying uh, MRI Pox, A beta, much, much longer, they study the pisinillin. So, why did we pick these two mutations? Mm-hmm. We actually developed mm-hmm. a very sensitive assay in culture, so this allows us to assay many mutations. So, those two mutations in culture were loss of function almost complete loss of function. Mm-hmm. So the knocking mice actually validated our in vitro assay. That was another surprising moment, even though when I, from very beginning, the fact that the mutation was more broadly distributed, I thought, or loss of function, but still. I mean, the idea is that if they're so broadly distributed, it's easier to break a protein probably than to give it a new function yeah. with just one mutation. Yeah, and uh, yeah. when I saw the knocking, the homozygotes knocking pup, I was really surprised. Yeah. It's like, just <laughs> like the knockout. Going back, you were like going back in time a little exactly. bit. Exactly. <laughs> the only thing is that um, <laughs> basically the knocking did not have cerebral hemorrhage, and uh, but the mouse looked identical and uh, mm. otherwise so so I was like I I thought my hunch was that it was <laughs> loss of function I never thought the phenotype would be identical to knockout right? so definitely bolstered uh, your 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 hunch yeah yeah so I think yeah. I mean well as a biologist you look at data and how else do I mm. interpret it if knock mm. in and uh, recapitulate and uh, the knockout phenotype and uh, mm-hmm. so that would be the only conclusion you can draw right but dif- the difference mm-hmm. is that 
the knockout mouse did not have mRNA, whereas knocking mice, mm -hmm. the mRNA is completely not effective because we introduced a single nucleotide mm -hmm. change, right? So I think, to me at least, the field may still, some people in the field may continue mm -hmm. wanting to debate, but I think right. the fact that two independent FAD mutations cause mm -hmm. complete loss of function in development, and also we um, cross through the conditional knockout background to assay this right. knocking allele, this FAD mutation effect on synaptic function and the memory and the neuronal survival, and that's all mimicking the loss of function phenotype. Mm -hmm. So I feel that to me, and I was satisfied and uh, yeah. for the FAD mechanism for uh, precision and mutation carriers, I think because they lose essential precision and function or gamma secretase activity and that underlies mm -hmm. and uh, the pathogenesis. Okay, so I usually like to end by asking you to give us uh, a quick preview of your upcoming talk. Um, so maybe can you give us a hint as to what you'll be talking about this Thursday? I actually will talk about, I think, this 20-year journey because graduate students mm -hmm. always like to hear how you start a project, <laughs> where do you go? Exactly. <laughs> so I like yeah. to uh, show that because I think it becomes more and more rewarding because especially mm -hmm. when you hold the minority view, right, it's not mm -hmm. easy and uh, mm -hmm. but if you believe in yourself and uh, if you mm -hmm. continue if you do everything very carefully I think the reward you know is in the end right we chose right. to be as we chose to do science over everything else and uh, mm -hmm. because I think we really believe in the end product I may not be the typical scientist who just love, love science mm -hmm. but I think I do mm -hmm. love truth and mm -hmm. so I'm willing and happy to uncover the truth and also how nature mm -hmm. works. So mm -hmm. I think to me that's the motivation and I think I want graduate students to see, you know. <laughs> that's, not, that's good to hear. Um, uh, so I guess that transitions really nicely into usually we like to end with a couple of rapid fire questions. So you're supposed to answer with what, whatever is on the top of your okay. mind. Um, so these are usually supposed to be fun. So the first question that we always ask is if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, uh, yeah, as a graduate student, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I think in the end I struggled. I switched labs to mm -hmm. Jay's lab at the end of my third mm -hmm. year. I think I struggled. I constantly thought about whether science was my calling. And, mm -hmm. uh, but only recently, and I'm 51, only recently mm -hmm. I finally sort of made peace with it, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was my choice all along, although it took me so long to realize that, <laughs> that I, I'm someone who never stops asking myself uh -huh. questions. So I think mm -hmm. everything actually worked out well, and uh, mm -hmm. because... You know, I mean, I spend extra years, and I remember talking to my advisor, like, uh, I want to move on. And uh, because mm -hmm. my once I moved the lab, everything was working very well. He kind of encouraged me to stay instead of publishing way, one mm -hmm. paper, and I stayed mm -hmm. another year and a half, published two more papers. Mm -hmm. I felt mm -hmm. like that was really important. That allowed me to uh, grow conceptually mm -hmm. and that allowed me to survive in the Tanagawa lab mm -hmm. where you know you mm -hmm. really have to be super independent right, right so right. if I yeah I, I felt like that because I did it 
and uh, mm -hmm. I actually felt like that was the right decision. If I want to give myself advice, that's the advice I would give myself. I did it anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, good, yeah. I guess, in a way, just have faith that uh, it will work out. Um, second question, you did mention that you had some other project ideas back in the day. If you could pick another dream project, either from that time or now, uh, what would it be? Oh, actually, another thing I was thinking about working on was ATM. That turned out to mm. be very important as well. And uh, then and the project Suzumu really liked when I chose, I oh. can't remember anymore because I actually was not trained as immunologist and never took immunology. Right. But somehow sitting in his lab, I was thinking about doing T-cell development and, and uh -huh. you know, peptide presentation mm -hmm. and all that. So I think the one idea came up with that and uh, um, to clone a co-receptor, dendritic co-receptor. And then mm -hmm. he went to check with a cellular immunologist uh, at MIT, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. basically they loved it. And then, but they did yeah. tell me that no one has been able to clone it for twenty. Years. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh! Like, oh, Fighting no. against twenty oh, years. I don't want to do it. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> well, it would have been a big finding, but it might have been difficult. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, good choice, anyway. Uh, all right, and the last thing is you mentioned that uh, at some point you were very interested in um, writing and literature. Uh, do you still read today? And if so, uh, what's a favorite book you can suggest to us? Oh, boy. And uh, I have a daughter who reads like crazy, mm -hmm. awesome. <laughs> and she's eight. She reads faster than mm -hmm. me now. That's so hard <laughs> of practice. And... Uh, is there a book you guys have read together? Maybe you could suggest those, those are who might be really kids' books. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like. Last summer we read the Pendlewicks, and uh, oh. I really liked it. And uh, so basically, <laughs> now all my reading time, I'm trying to read the books mm. she's reading so that I have some yeah. idea what she's reading and I mm. I no longer have time to read for myself yeah. anymore and also she mm. said mama your job is just to take care of me and your lab <laughs> <laughs> that's actually that's very true, true. I that's, very, that's very true <laughs> of my well, own. I'm sure it's rewarding but I'm still <laughs> hoping that one day yeah. I would feel I have done enough for science then I can you know, really pursue my writing. But on the other hand, like I said, I love playing with numbers and the writing, and I spend all my time correcting, you know, people's, correcting manuscripts, writing pens, right? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. sometimes I feel like I'm, 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 you know, an English teacher. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. This has been a great interview, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. I enjoyed it, too. Thank you all for listening. We'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Anne Churchland, Associate Professor of Neurobiology at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senora, Mark Catalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Louise Gian, Eddie Alboran, Andrew Gundren, Yet Nguyen, and myself, Aiden. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Burned, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk, and I'm Aiden. Thank you.